0: How do you save and invest for the future? What do banks actually do with the money you deposit with them? How does the stock market really work? How do I reduce the risk of the savings and investments that I make? And if I'm starting a company, how can I raise money? These are critical financial questions, but they are never taught at school. They're not taught at university. Yes, you can learn them at business school, but it costs up to £100,000 to do an MBA. So this is why my fourth and final Gresham College Lecture Series will aim to make clear the principles of finance to a general audience. No finance background is necessary, so this is pitched at people who are new to finance. But those of you who have a finance background, I will put in snippets from time to time, which will hopefully be new to you. So if these lectures start with things that you will already know, hopefully they will come, contain some new information going forwards. Now, today's lecture is on how to save and invest for the future. And so let me start with how to save. So what is saving? Well, saving basically is depositing your money in a bank to get it back later. So effectively, what you're doing is you're renting your money out to a bank and then that you're getting what you've rented out back. And this rental analogy is useful Because what you get back is similar to renting out a house. So if you rent out your house to somebody else, you get your rental payments every month or maybe every year. And then at the end of the rental period, you get that house back. And those two things have analogies when you're saving with a bank. So the interest that you get is like the rental payment. That is what the bank gives you for renting out your money because it can do what it wants with the money. And then at the end, when you get your your money back just like you get your house back at the end if you are a landlord. And the principal, that is the name given for how much you've lent to begin with. So again, house, you lend the house, you get the rental payments and you get the house back with money you lend the principal, you get the interest back every period, and then you get the principal back at the end. So let's look at this with some numbers. So how is the interest typically given? That's defined as a percentage of the principal. So if I am lending one pound, and the interest rate is 10%, or 0.1, what am I getting back after one year? Well, today I've lent one, I always get my principal back, just like I lend my house, I get my house back, but I also get the rental payment on that one pound, that is my interest, 10% of one pound is 10 pence. So at the end of a year, I get principal and interest, my total return is one pound and ten. And if you want to get there in one fell swoop, rather than breaking out the principal and interest, you just multiply the one pound with 1.1, which is one plus the interest rate of 10%. Okay, so that's what you have after one year. Hopefully, that's something which is standard, which you'll already know. But now what happens in the second year? Let's say you're going to rent out your money, you're going to save your money, keep it in the bank for a second year. Now, remember the two parts. You still get your principal back, the £1.10 that you kept in your bank account after the first year. That stays there, and that £1.10 is what you get after year two. But now, the interest of 10%, importantly, is calculated on the £1.10. Because in the second year, you start with £1.10, you get interest on that, And 10% of £1.10 is now 11 pence, not 10 pence. So the money that you have at the end of the second year is £1.21. So importantly, while you only made 10 pence in the first year, you made 11 pence in the second year. And this is one of the most powerful things in finance. It's known as compound interest. The idea is that you get interest on interest. When you calculate the interest that you get in the second year, that is based on the end of year one amount, which already contains some 10 pence of interest that you earned on the first year. And so this is why you're having the extra 1p at the end of year two. Now you might think, well, that's just one extra pence, but actually if you compound over a large period of time, this power of compounding can make a huge difference. And so let me now generalise this. So what we've looked at is £1 grows to pound ten, and then £1.21. Now, if you wanted to do that in one fell swoop, rather than step by step, what would I do? Now, the naive answer would be to say, if I'm getting 10% interest every year, for two years, then that's 20% interest. But that's wrong, because 20% interest would give you £1.20, not £1.21. Because we have the power of compound interest, you don't simply add the 10 to the 10. What you do is you do 1.1 times 1.1, or 1.1 squared, 1.1 to the power of 2, to reflect the fact you're getting 1.1 every year. So the generalisation I want to do is to say, well, what happens if you're lending your money for T years? So T could be 5 years, 10 years, 15 years, or any length of time. Well, all you would do is you would take 1.1, which is the interest rate per year, and then raise that to the power of t. So what I've shown you here is, well, when you say, what you're getting back is the interest rate every year for how many years you're putting your money away for. And notice we can generalize this even further. Not only can we generalize this to any number of years, we can also generalize this to a different amount of money we're going to deposit to begin with. Let's say our principal is c, Pounds, £5, £10, £1 a million, that can be anything. And rather than having the interest rate be 10%, let's have the interest rate be R. Interest rates could be 2% on a bank account, or 5% again, or anything. And then what we have is a similar principle. That amount C, that grows at a rate of 1 plus R per year, If we're investing for T years, then overall that C is now multiplied by that interest rate to the power of how many years you are lending that money for. And so let's step back from the formulas and just ask, why is this useful, right? So it may be that you're saving to put a deposit down on the house in the future. And you want to ask yourself, if I'm saving some money, for a certain length of time, what will that money grow to? So what deposit might I be able to put down in the future? And if you think, well, that's not actually enough money, then maybe you need to save a little bit more. And so this is why it's really useful to do this. What I'm doing here is called calculating the future value of money. Regardless of how much money you are saving right now, what the interest rate is, and how many years I'm saving for, I can always calculate that future value so I know how much money I have in the future. So let's just do that with a simple example. So let's say I'm gonna save 5,000 pounds. I found an interest rate, a bank account, with an interest rate of 8% per year, and that bank account is open for six years. I just take 5,000, multiplied by 1.08 to the power of six, and that gives me nearly £8,000 in six years' time. Okay, So, what I mentioned earlier is this compound interest. It's one of the most powerful things in finance. And this shows you the power of compounding. So, what am I showing you on this chart? Let me make this clear. What I'm showing you on the vertical axis is how much money you have, and how much it's worth in the future. So here we are investing, we're saving £100. And we're gonna save it for a certain number of years which is given on the horizontal axis. Now these different lines correspond to different interest rates. So the green line here is if there's no interest rate at all. Your £100 stays at £100. Here we've got a 5% interest rate, then 10, and then the red line is 15. And what we see is that if you're only investing for a small amount of time, it really doesn't matter what interest rate you're getting because you're not investing for that long. Just like if you rented out your house, if you're only renting it out for a couple of years, doesn't really matter what rent you get. But the power of compound interest is such that if you're investing for a long period of time, it really makes a massive difference as to what the interest rate is. Right, so here, if it's 5%, you're getting about £200 at the end of 20 years. Whereas if it's 15%, you're getting about 1,600. So you're getting eight times more money, even though the interest rate might only be three times as much because of this idea of interest on interest. So my next question is, well, why do you actually want to save money? And you might think, well, that's a bit of a bizarre question. It's obvious. We want to save money because we want more money in the future. But actually, that's not the case. What you don't actually want money, what you want is a higher standard of living. Right. So why do people like money? It's not because they're King Midas and they like looking at money. You like money because you want to buy stuff. And the important thing is the cost of living goes up over time, and that's the concept of inflation. So what I'm now going to do is to look at, well, how does inflation affect the return on your savings? So let's say you're an Appletarian. All you do is eat apples. That's the only thing that you buy with your money. Now, let's say apples cost one pound today, and let's say we have the interest rate of 26%. So if we put our money in the bank, it's going to grow by 26% by the end of next year. But the question is, how many more apples can you buy at the end of the year? Now, the answer is it's not necessarily 26% more, because what matters is how much the price of apples changes from year to year. And so that's what inflation is inflation is if you have the same good, but it goes up in price from year to year. So one apple this year and an apple next year, that's of exactly the same quality. But if the apple has gone up from one pound to one pound five, that is said to be 5% inflation. So why does that matter? So let's go back to where we are today. Money, we have 100 pounds. All we buy is apples. The apples cost one pound each. How many apples can we buy? 100 pounds? One pound per apple? 100 apples. Now next year, our money has grown from 100 to 126. Why? Again, the interest rate is 26 percent, so our money's gone up. But the price of apples has gone up from one pound to one pound five. So the question is, how many apples can we now buy? How do we calculate that? How much money do we have? Divided by the cost per apple, that gives you the number of apples. So £126 divided by £1.5 per apple gives us 120 apples. So let's again strip back from the numbers and look at the bottom line, the punchline you are only 20% better off. Yes, your money has gone up by 26%, but because we don't just want money to look at money, we want money to buy apples, and the price of apples has gone up, then we are actually only 20% better off. And just to give you terminology, that 20% better off is known as your real rate of return. So the word real here... Means how much more can you buy in terms of goods and services, taking into account inflation? So one of the goals of this lecture is just to help us understand terms that we might see in the news or in the newspapers. And often people talk about the real interest rate. And whenever they say real, it means after taking inflation into account. Well, you might think, what's the opposite of real? If you don't take inflation into account, the answer is nominal. So the nominal rate of return is how much more you get in money terms. So here your nominal rate of return is 26%, but the real rate of turn takes inflation into account and it's only 20. So again, let's generalise this and look at um, what will happen in general. So let's say the nominal rate of return is R. It was 26% in the last example, but it could be anything. It can be whatever bank account you're choosing. The inflation rate, 5% in the last example. Let's say it's generally I. What we care about when deciding whether it's worth it for me to save for the future is what is the real rate of return capital R. How do we calculate the real rate of return? Well, we do something very similar to what we did on the last slide. We first say, how much does our money grow by? That's based on the nominal rate of return, little r, 26%. And then we divide it by how much apples have gone up by. And that is the inflation rate, 5% in the last example. And that gives us the real rate of return of 20%. Now again, Let me stress that in finance and in anything in this lecture series, we always get the answer by multiplying and dividing, not by adding and subtracting. A very simple answer might be, well, if the interest rate is 26% and my inflation rate is 5%, maybe the real rate of turn is 26 minus 5 equals 21. But that's not the case you don't simply subtract, just like when I did compound interest, you don't just add the interest rate over two years. Instead, you divide, and this is why we get the answer being 20. It is not simple subtraction. So again, what is the bottom line from this? Well, when deciding whether to save for the future, we also need to take into account how the cost of living might change. And this is why, if you look in the media and you look at what the banks are thinking about, they are worried about inflation. Stepping back from the equations and going into the real world, why is the Bank of England concerned about inflation being high? It's because people who save for the future, the value of those savings will be eroded if prices go up. It might mean in the future, they might not be able to afford food and housing and clothing. And so this is why inflation is an important concern. And sadly, this is no laughing matter. In some countries, inflation can be so massive. So in Zimbabwe, due to financial mismanagement, you could have some notes worth $10 trillion. Now, anybody holding this is actually not rich because inflation was so high, you could buy barely anything with this amount of money. Okay, so I've talked about interest rate, that's the return on your money. Inflation, which erodes away what you can do with the money. What is the one other thing which erodes away what you can do with your money? It is taxes. Okay, so why are there taxes? So just philosophically, the government taxes people who earn money because the more you earn, the more you can afford to pay taxes. And so income tax, one of the arguments for that is the wealthier people are, the more they should pay towards the National Health Service and so on. And so one source of income is obviously your job, and people who earn more should be paying higher tax. But another source of income is interest if you're lucky enough to be really wealthy and to be earning interest every year, then the government thinks it's only fair for you to also pay tax on that. So what is really important to highlight is that you only pay tax on your interest and not your principal. Again, after you take your money out from the bank, you get back what you already put in plus the interest But only the interest is an actual gain, right? Getting back what you put in, you've not gained anything. You're just getting back what you lent. So only the interest is the amount that will be suffering any tax. Again, let's look at this with a real example. So I've put in red the fact that there's a 20% tax rate. How does this change anything? Well, it doesn't change anything with the principal you just get your money back. That is not tax. You're getting back what you put in. You're not gaining anything. But you do gain that 10% of interest. And so you're paying 20% on that. So rather than getting back 10 pence, you get 20% less. You are only getting 8 pence. And your total return is only pound eight because you've suffered tax on your interest income. Now, the important thing to note is that even though there are taxes, you're still better off putting your money in the bank than not doing anything because £1.8 is greater than one. When I was a young boy, one of my uh, family friends said, you should put your money in the mattress, under the mattress. Don't put it in the bank because that will avoid tax. Well, she was right, but tax is not a bad thing because you only get tax if you've made gains to begin with. If you're putting your money under the mattress, you're not even getting any interest to begin with. Yes, you're not paying any tax, but that's because you've made no gain. Here, you are getting a gain, you are getting the interest. It's true that you're paying tax on that, but even after tax, you're still making some sort of gain. And so we can, again, move forward from that generalise it. So let's say now the tax rate is not 20%, it's T%. The interest rate is not 10%, it's R. What we are saying here is that after one year, you're getting your R of interest, that is taxed, and therefore at the end of one year, you're getting back your principal plus your taxed interest. But importantly, this is still higher than what you started with. So even though there are taxes that you have to pay, you are still better off by putting your money in the bank than not. So the final thing in this section is just to get some real world data, is that what does tax look like in the UK? So this is now the practical matter of how do you pay tax and how much tax should you pay? What banks do in the UK is they will always pay interest gross. What does gross mean? It means without deducting tax. The opposite of gross is net. So net is after tax, gross is without deducting tax. So banks pay interest without deducting any tax. Now, some of the people, will have to pay tax, because if you earn enough income, then the government will start taxing you. So, the lowest income earners will pay the basic rate of tax, and so they are people who pay 20% of tax on their income because they earn less than £50,000. And if that's the case, then the government allows you to earn £1,000 of interest tax free So this is really important, right, to know what your allowance is because if you've earned £1,000 or less of interest, don't suddenly think, oh, I need to start paying tax because otherwise I'm breaking the law. No, you're allowed to earn £1,000 of interest tax-free because you have an allowance. Again, the government would like to help out low-income people by allowing them to save and get interest tax-free. What about if you're a higher rate taxpayer? If you earn, I think it's between 50 and 150,000 pounds per year, then on your income, you typically pay 40% tax. You are only allowed 500 pounds of tax free interest. And if you earn a ho- above 150,000, you're a higher rate taxpayer, you have no personal savings allowance at all. So, How do you actually pay tax? Well, what you need to do is at the end of the year, you need to declare how much interest income you have um, received in your tax return. And if you've earned above your allowance, that's not illegal. You've not exceeded any limit. You've not done anything wrong. All you need to do is you need to declare that and then the government will assess how much tax you need to pay on that interest income. Now, what happens if you don't pay any tax at all? If you earn less than the personal allowance of £12,500, this is how much income somebody is allowed to earn from any source before he or she pays tax. Then you're not paying any tax at all, and then you can earn up to this amount in interest or income, salary and so on without paying any tax. Now, the second section I'm going to have is how to invest in terms of bonds. So I've talked about how to save. So saving is just putting your money in a bank account. What is investing? This is buying some securities and these can be either bonds or these can be stocks and shares. So let me start with bonds and let me define what a bond is. So a bond is pretty similar to saving and renting that I said in my first period. So when you save, what I said is you're renting out your money to the bank, and the bank does something with the money. When you buy a bond, you are renting out your money, but instead of renting it out to the bank, you're renting it out to the government or to a company. So one type of a bond is a government bond, where the UK government is borrowing money from you in order to build roads and so on. And so if I buy a government bond, I'm giving the government money when I buy the bond. And in the future, I am going to be getting back interest and the principal back. I can also have a corporate bond or a company bond where I'm lending my money to a company and they are using that to build a factory or to pay their workers. So bonds work in a very similar way to a bank account. So every so often, they pay interest, which is known as a coupon. That is just the special name for it, but it is just acts like interest. And then at the end, they repay the principal, and the principal is sometimes known as the par value or the face value. For example, you can have a government bond, which is 3% treasury stock 2030, So what this means is they're going to pay interest of 3% every year and pay you everything back in 2030. This is known as the maturity date of a bond. That's when the government is going to pay you the money back. Or you could have a corporate bond where you're lending the money to Tesco, where here, this Tesco bond of 4% in 2025, Tesco is paying you 4% interest every year, and we'll pay you back everything in 2025. So while this lecture is called How to Save and Invest, hopefully this has made it clear that saving and investment are both pretty much variations on the same theme. In both cases, you're putting your money away to get it back in the future with some interest or with some coupon. But there's two differences between bonds buying bonds, and also saving your money in the bank. One important difference is that when you save your money in the bank, you can withdraw your cash at any point in time. You can always get your money back. Whereas if you've bought a bond from Tesco, you can't go to Tesco and say, I want my money back, I want to go out for a restaurant meal. Tesco will not give you the money back until 2025. So this is why bonds have a clear maturity date where only then will you get your money back, in contrast to, let's say, a current account or a checking account where you can get your money back at any time. But then you might think, well, what happens if I suddenly need my money back before 2025? I buy my Tesco bond, I think I can invest my money for four years, but something suddenly happens. Maybe I'm in a car accident and I need to repair my car. What can I do when I hold the bond? Here's the second difference, is that you can sell it secondhand. So with a bond, you can always trade this to somebody else. So I could go to Claire and I could say to Claire, look, I've got a bond which is going to pay me back money from Tesco every year until 2025. How much will you pay me for it? In lecture three, we're going to look at how much Claire will pay for this. But all I'm saying here is that I can sell the second hand and I might get, when I sell it to Claire a higher amount than what I paid for the bond to begin with. And that will be known as a capital gain. Again, this is a new term I'm introducing. What is a capital gain? That's the difference between what I buy something for and what I sell something for. And if I sell it for more than I buy, this is known as a capital gain. Obviously, the opposite is known as a capital loss. So what this means is that unlike a bank account where the only source of return is your interest, with a bond, there are two sources of return that you can get. First, you're getting back your interest every year, just like with a bank account, but you can also get a capital gain or loss if you sell the bond for a different price than what you bought it for. And so let's look at that. So what I'm gonna now introduce is the idea of a bond yield. So the yield of a bond combines those two sources of return. I'm gonna get the return from the interest and I'm also gonna get part of the return from a capital gain. And again, the easiest way to see this is with a real example. So let's say I bought this Tesco bond for 4%, which gives 4% interest, and I bought the bond from Tesco for £100. I've lent Tesco £100, and then I'm going to get back 4% 4, uh, 4 interest every year. However, Claire decides now to buy the bond from me because I'm really desperate. Well, I need the money because I need to repair my car. Now, Claire is only going to offer me £99, perhaps because she knows that I really need the money. So what is Claire's return when she gets back the money next year? Well, she gets the £4 of interest. Importantly, the £4 of interest is based on the original £100 that I lent to Tesco. So she's still getting the £4 of interest. And then she's going to get back the £100 that I lent to Tesco to begin with. But importantly, that £100 still stays. The fact that she's bought it from me at a discount of 99 doesn't affect the fact that it's £100 that I lent to begin with, and therefore she will get back the £100 next year. So if next year her total return is £104, which is £100 plus the £4 interest, she's only put in £99 because she's only bought this from me at 99 then her overall yield, her total return, is 5.05%. Now, one thing I'm going to try and stress throughout all of these lectures is a sanity check. Do these things make sense? If we strip back away from the numbers, is what I'm saying making sense? And the answer is yes. The yield, the total return that Claire gets, is 5%. It's more than 4% because not only has she got the interest of 4%, she has also got the capital gain. Okay, so that's my final section on bonds. What I'm going to spend the the final 17 minutes or so before Q&A is on stocks and shares, because that's what often people think about when they are investing. So the first thing to explain is, well, what do stocks and shares, what are actually stocks and shares to begin with? And the important thing to highlight is that they're pretty much the same thing. So when I was at secondary school in St. Paul's in London, so there were like newspapers in the common area, and you'd have like 14-year-old kids who'd be reading the newspaper, and if people asked them what they're doing, they'd say, oh, I'm looking at stocks and shares, it sounds really sophisticated. But to say that is like saying, I'm going to drink water and H2O, right? They are exactly the same. So stocks and shares, they're actually not different from each other. What are they? What a share is, is a share of the ownership of a company. So if I own shares in Marks & Spencer, I own part of Marks & Spencer. So let's look at this and let's look at what it actually means with a real example. Let's go back to Tesco. So what does this mean? I've taken this from the Financial Times and this says the price of one share at Tesco is 225 pence point, 225.7 pence. So if I bought one share of Tesco, it would cost me that. What does one share of Tesco give me? What it also says is the number of shares outstanding of Tesco is 7.73 billion. So what that effectively means is Tesco its ownership is divided into 7.73 billion little, little pieces. So if I own one share, I own one divided by one 7.73 billion of Tesco. Now, that's only a tiny part of Tesco, but because Tesco is such a large company, even this absolutely tiny part of Tesco is worth something. It's worth slightly more than two pounds. So one other thing here I want to highlight, is market cap. So what I'm trying to do is define a lot of terms that we hear in the news, but it's often jargon. I want to demystify them and explain what this means. So the market cap of Tesco, or the market value of Tesco, is how much the entirety of Tesco is believed to be worth. How do we calculate that? Well, if one share is worth 2 to 5.7, and to buy Tesco, you need to buy all 7.7 billion shares, then how much is Tesco worth? It's worth the price of a share, 225 p multiplied by the number of shares they have. So overall, Tesco is costing 17.5 billion pounds. So what this means is that the market thinks the value of all of Tesco's shops and the value of Tesco's people the value of Tesco's brand, and all of that, that would be worth 17 and a half billion pounds. Now, in a future lecture, we're gonna talk about is this right or is this wrong? But all I'm saying is people believe that this is what Tesco's worth. Just like if you go back to houses, right? what does the housing market say? Well, it might say that a two bedroom flat in Bayswater costs a million pounds. Is this right or wrong? Well, we can debate that. But what the market does is it sets what price people are willing to trade those houses for. So why do you even want to buy shares to begin with? Well, what do they entitle you to? So every year, Tesco earns profits. Profits are what Tesco gets from selling the stuff in its stores minus the wages it pays its workers minus the raw materials that it bought those goods for. Now, if Tesco makes profits, let's say, of 10 billion pounds, what does it do with that 10 billion pounds? Well, it can do two things. One of them is it can reinvest them within Tesco. It could use that 10 billion pounds, perhaps, to buy more stores or to refurbish its existing stores. And so that doesn't get paid out to shareholders. That gets reinvested. So let's say 7 billion out of that 10 is reinvested within Tesco. The remainder, it will pay out to Tesco shareholders and that is known as a dividend. So again, dividend is a very common term. So what is a dividend? It's how much you are choosing to pay out to your shareholders rather than reinvesting. So dividends and profits are two quite separate things. Profits is how much money you have made, and dividends is how much you're choosing to pay out. But anything you've chosen to pay out is still kept within the company and is still worth something. It's just like with your own salary. You get paid every month. You might choose to withdraw some of that money from the cash machine. That's like a dividend. And anything you don't withdraw... You still earn that, it's just staying within the bank account. Okay, so if you've got one share of Tesco, then it entitles you to one over 7 billion of all future dividends. So how much dividends Tesco pays out, it needs to split them equally to every single shareholder. And we can indeed look up how much these dividends are. So if you look up in the Financial Times, it says the annual dividend of Tesco was 10p last year. And so why is it that one share of Tesco currently costs 225.7p? It's because the market thinks that one seven billionth of future dividends is worth 225p. Now in lecture five, we're gonna calculate, is this the right number? But let's go away from the calculations and say, well, What determines how much dividends Tesco will pay? Well, that depends on the state of the economy. So if the economy is doing really, really well, then people will think people are going to go to Tesco stores. They're going to buy stuff at Tesco. Tesco is going to be able to make more money, and it's going to be able to pay out higher dividends. So this is why when good things happen to the economy, share prices go up. Well, in the news, we will see, oh, there was great news about um, the recovery from the recession. stock prices went up. Well, why did they go up? It's because people think companies are going to be more, making more profits in the future and will be able to pay more dividends in the future. And just like with bonds, you are able to sell your shares to other people in the future. And and if you do that, you make a capital gain or a capital loss. So there's two sources of return that you get from buying shares. First, every year or every six months sometimes, you will get dividends from a company. And then you can choose to sell your shares whenever you want to. And then if you sell your shares for more than what you paid for them, that that is called a capital gain. So, when you buy shares, you're hoping that they all pay you dividends, but you're also hoping they're going to go up in value because of changes to the economy. Now, what happens if things go wrong? So, now what I'm going to look at is, well, what happens in a bankruptcy? And this is really important because this tells you the difference between shares and bonds. Remember I said, if you think about investment, we can either buy shares or buy bonds. Well, which is better? Is it better to get dividends? or is it better to get interest? Well, the important thing is, well, what happens when a company goes bankrupt and it's in trouble? So what is bankruptcy? Bankruptcy is when a company cannot pay back all of its debt. So if I borrow £100 and my company is worth less than that, I can't pay back everything. I am bankrupt. Now, here's the really important thing. Debt or bonds, this is said to be senior. What it means is in a bankruptcy, you are paid first, and then equity or shares, this is said to be junior, you only get paid back after everybody else has been paid first. And so in a bankruptcy, it's much better to be a debt holder to own bonds because you're being paid first. So let's look at this with an example. So let's say you've got a house, and in order to buy that house, you have taken a mortgage from the bank of £100. I want to start with the middle column here. And so this says, well, what happens if the house is worth £100 and the mortgage is worth £100? Well, therefore, your share in the house is zero. If I was to sell my house, I'd get £100, and I'd have to pay back the bank entirely. This is what it means for the bank to be senior. The bank needs to be paid back first before I get anything. Now, let's move on to the right. What happens if the house goes up in value to £200? Well, I am getting all of the upside as the homeowner because I've borrowed £100 from the bank I only need to pay it back hundred pounds. The bank gets no share of the upside. The upside is enjoyed entirely by me, and therefore my shares in the company, which is also known as the equity in the company, in the house, is worth hundred. I get what's left after the bank has been paid. And then a really positive state, which is on the right, Let's say the house goes up to 100000 so to 10000 It goes up in value 100 times. Now, again, I only need to pay the bank back what I originally borrowed. So I'm keeping all of the difference. So this is why buying shares can be extremely lucrative. If great things happen to a company, you only need to pay back the bank what you borrowed and no more. It's shareholders who get all of the upside. And again, stepping away from this slides into the real world, this is why Tesla, Google, Apple, if you are a shareholder in any of those companies, you've done extremely well. Those companies have done great, and the banks that lent to them, they only get back what they lent to begin with. But what happens when things go wrong? Here, actually, it's good to be in the bank. So let's say the value of the house goes from 100 down to 70, who gets paid back first? It's still the bank. The bank gets everything, shareholders get nothing. And if it goes down further to 20, right, the bank gets the entire house, which is worth 20, again, shareholders don't get everything. So in the downside, it's much better to be a bank, to be a debt holder, than a shareholder because at least you get something. So overall, when choosing whether to save or to invest, it depends on your attitude to risk. If you're somebody who would like the prospect of high returns and don't want to aren't worried about losing everything, then buy shares. Shares are very risky, right? They can make you a huge amount of money, but you can walk away with nothing and you can lose all of the raw original investment. So this is why if you invest in shares, one rule of thumb is to not invest something that you cannot afford to lose. Whereas if you put your money in the bank or if you buy some bonds lending to a company, there it is safer. You're not going to get massive returns. You're only going to be getting back your interest and maybe some capital gains. But even if things go belly up and the company goes bankrupt, you will still get something here. Now, one final thing I need to stress here is that when things go really badly and the company is bankrupt, as a shareholder, your liability is limited. You might think that in this situation, right, you should, as shareholders, have to stump up an extra £30 so that the bank gets the £100 that it invested to begin with but this is actually not the case. This is what's known as limited liability. This means that as a shareholder, you can only lose what you originally put in. If there's a bankruptcy, you don't need to dip into your pocket and put in extra money so that debt holders are being bailed out, are getting um, back what they put in. So if you are buying debt or buying bonds in a company, you are still bearing some risk because if things go bad, you're not getting back everything that you put in. So you might have heard this phrase, negative equity. Well, this phrase is often used to describe a house where the house has gone down in value, so it's worth less than the original mortgage like in the second column here. But the whole idea of negative equity does not make sense because the value of equity can never be negative, it can never be below zero, and this is because of the whole idea of limited liability. I'd like to talk about mutual funds. So what is that? So what I've talked about previously was buying individual shares. So I could buy shares in Tesla, I could buy shares in Tesco. But be very, very careful about buying individual shares Because one individual share could be extremely risky, right? So you could buy Tesla, and maybe it could be they go bust the next day, and then you have lost absolutely everything. Now, you will probably have some friends who tell you, oh, they bought a particular company and it did really, really well. But I'm sure they bought many other companies, and they might have done badly. So one of the most powerful, and a second really powerful thing in finance, I've talked about one thing, compound interest. A second really powerful thing is diversification. So here, you're not just buying one share, you're buying lots and lots of shares. And why is that so powerful? It's because if any one individual share goes bankrupt, then this is only going to be affecting a very small part of your portfolio. Okay, so this is what a mutual fund does. So when I buy into a mutual fund, rather than buying one share of one company, I'm giving some money to a professional investor. So mutual funds are run by investors like Fidelity or BlackRock or Legal & General, companies that I'm sure you've heard of. So when I put my money into a mutual fund, I'm giving my money to that company And it's going to be investing that money for me in lots of companies so that I don't have all of my eggs in one basket. And so there's two types of mutual funds. One of them is a passive fund. So a passive fund is one where the mutual fund will just hold every single stock, let's say, in the FTSE, which is the list of the largest 100 shares in the UK. The second type of mutual fund is one which is active where there is an actual fund manager and she will choose which shares to hold and which shares to avoid. Now, one isn't clearly better than the other. You might think, well, an active fund is better because you've got a manager and that manager is making some decisions, but you're going to have to pay that manager because you need somebody to make those decisions. So active funds tend to be more expensive than passive funds. Why? Because you have to pay a manager. So in return for giving your money to this asset manager, you need to give them a fee every year to manage their money. And if you choose to have an active fund, there's different funds that you can choose to hold. So some of them will differ according to the size of the companies they will invest in. For example, the T. Rowe Price U.S. Large Cap Growth Equity Fund invests in large companies. So that would be the U.S. equivalent of, say, the Tesco's. So in the U.S., that might be Amazon and Google. Or you might buy the Schroeder U.S. Smaller Companies Fund and that invests in small companies. And again, what will you base your choice on? Well, there are some people who believe, well, let's buy with the small, big companies they are safer. Others will decide, let's buy smaller companies, they've got the potential to become big later. When you choose a fund, you can also choose them based on different industries. For example, there is a fund called the Pictet Clean Energy Fund, and that will only invest in clean energy, or the First Trust Cloud Computing Fund. And again, why might you do that? it might be that you think one sector is an exciting sector, so you want to go into that. And rather than just buying one cloud computing company, which will be risky, you've got all your eggs in one basket, by buying into this fund, you're buying into lots of different companies, and therefore your risk is spread more widely. And finally, we can think about funds that are stratified by region. So the Jupiter India Fund invests obviously in India, The polar capital European ex-UK fund will invest everywhere in continental Europe, but not the UK. And again, this gives you a lot of discretion as to where to put your money. So one of the great things that's happened in finance over the past several decades is the launch of all of these mutual funds. And this is really empowering because this gives us as investors, as savers, the power to put our money into the companies that, might reflect what we would like to see in the world. Maybe we would just like to develop more clean energy and put our money into this. Or maybe we think that the European Union is is going to be doing well in the future. Rather than having to buy individual stocks, we can buy lots and lots of companies together and spread risk. So in my final minute or so, one huge adage that I would like to stress when saving or investing is this one. Get rich slowly but get rich. So what does this mean? You'll have people who said, oh, I bought Bitcoin. It went up a huge amount. I bought my second home and this also made a lot of money. But that was only one thing in the portfolio. If you're putting your eggs into one basket, that thing could fail. If you're investing in loads and loads of companies, you're not going to get rich quickly because if one company does well, That's only one small part of the portfolio. But when you're investing, you're investing for the future. I showed you the power of compounding investing for long periods of time. And if you're to take this diversified approach, you are gonna be safeguarding your and your family's future for many years to come. Thank you very much, Alex. I think we all agree that's very informative. Um, We'll start with a question from the online audience. And interest rates on ordinary savings are very low at the moment. Presumably they are not keeping up with inflation... Yes, that's right. So often, if you're, if you're putting your money in the bank account, they will be actually less than inflation. So that's uh, so. Why is that? So the government might have low interest rates in order to encourage people not to save, actually, because they want people to go out and spend and to stimulate the economy. So this might be a reason for actually making some purchases because to put your money in the um, bank is not actually keeping up with inflation. However, you shouldn't think, oh, because it's not keeping up with inflation, let's just put the money under the mattress because you would still be suffering inflation in that case as well. Thank you uh, for the talk. Um, I was wondering other than mutual funds where can you actually buy shares? Yeah so what you do and so I'll go through this more in next next week's lecture but happy to go here. So what you do is you open a brokerage account with a company like Hargreaves Lansdowne or AJ Bell and so what you will do is you'll place an order through them. You can do it by a telephone, but you can also do it online, where you will find the share that you want, and then you'll place an order, I would like to buy 400 shares of Tesco at this amount. And so they will do that for you in return for a commission. And one other thing which has happened in recently is these commissions have come really down, so it's actually quite cheap to buy individual shares. Do you still hold your first stock investments, and what mistakes made in the stock market, if any, did you learn the most from? Yeah, so I've um, I can't remember the first stock I bought, but I did buy a fund um, in. 2007 which is about 14 years ago and that's a fund called the Parnassus Workplace Fund which invests in companies that treat employees well. So those of you who came to my very first year lecture series I talked about my own research which finds that companies that treat their employees well do well in the long term and I found there was a fund that actually built on that strategy and I've held that for the last 14 years and that's done really well. I think in terms of um, what, what are the main mistakes is just to, uh, to follow trends and to think that the past is always going to carry on in the future. So in the tech bubble, people would buy into internet stocks because they went up, thinking they're going to keep going up. But actually, it might be that they're buying into a bubble where something is overhyped. And similarly, um, right now, there's a lot of excitement about electric cars. So many people might go into electric car stocks, and I myself have to admit that I did myself, not realising that these electric car stocks might already be overpriced because people have bought into this. So just like you'll see this, those of you who follow football or any sports, right? often you will see players who will transfer for huge amounts of money because they've done well over a couple of games but because everybody starts jumping on that bandwagon they might become too expensive so I would say the same about stocks instead of being driven by emotions and excitement actually the passive approach of investing in a fund which is broadly based is probably going to be doing on the better in the long term than chasing after a couple of stocks Yeah, Your uh, lecture this evening is incredibly important and I think you're right in it saying it's incredibly important to learn at a very early age uh, I sort of know what you're talking about, but it's sort of taken me 40 years to get from there to where I am now. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering how the best way of making this information available to the younger people, uh, kids in particular, I assume that if you want to learn this information, you would take an economics class. But is that the best way of passing this information on to the next generation? Well, I really appreciate that question because that's something I'm I'm really passionate about and why I've chosen to give this lecture series. So I myself did A-level economics, but I started that at the age of 16. And as you're saying, these are things that you want to learn maybe from when you're, you're 11 or 12. And indeed, A-level economics is much more theoretical. You would never learn things like interest and dividends and and the tax treatment of things and so on. So I think that this is why we we need extra classes in financial literacy. So a Gresham professor's appointment is only for three years, and I should have ended last year, but it's because I feel so strongly about the importance of financial literacy that I applied for a fourth year, and Gresham kindly gave me this for this fourth year. But I think it should be something which is part of government policy. So a few years ago the government had this white paper on industrial strategy saying, well how do we build back well, how do we build a great industrial strategy? And they said we need great STEM research, STEM education, science, technology, engineering and maths. And I agree with that. But there was nothing in that about financial literacy, and so I wrote in my response to the consultation the importance of this. But unfortunately, this again didn't fell on deaf ears. It's still not part of the curriculum. So those of you who've come to this, if you think if you know of people who you think will benefit from that, please do share it. There's both the lecture, but there's also I did, I was even more extensive in my notes and transcript than I was for any of my three prior lectures because I realised there's some people who just learn better through reading, and so the lecture the lecture notes will go. St- by step through everything that I've done here. At what point in time are dividends paid out? For example, if you buy a share and sell it in two months' time, might you have missed the point in time when dividends were paid out? This is a really good question. So actually, when a company pays out dividends, it's not a good thing. And you might think, well, that's a bit crazy. Don't you want to receive money? But let's go back to the analogy of withdrawing from an, a cash machine. Well, if I withdraw, I get some money now, but I've got less money in my bank account. And so whenever a dividend is paid out, the company's share price goes down by that amount of the dividend. So it's not actually bad if you miss the dividend because a dividend is like a withdrawal of the company and it reduces the price of the shares which um, which are remaining. Thank Thank you very much.